This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and happy Doge Day to everybody. If you're paying attention, I guess April 20th is now Doge Day, and I always look at things from a narrative perspective first and foremost. And what I see going on with Doge is a weird conflation of the news. Like, I mean, you have Tesla and Elon Musk who is basically kind of pumping Doge, to speak very generally. I was listening to Real Vision this morning, their daily update, and one of the comments was that the Fed is going to have to step in here because Doge is getting out of control, and part of their mandate, their third you know, not very commonly spoken mandate, is to keep financial stability, and that what we see going on with Dogecoin is really going to lead to regulation of the crypto markets. So they were saying, I'm not so sure of this, but I, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting perspective. For me, I mean, the, the significance I gather from something like that is the fact that the Fed and Dogecoin are being discussed in the same sentence by serious financial commentators. And that's no judgment on them. I, I think it's actually very insightful what they're saying. And they may be right. But on a purely narrative perspective, I just see these two ideas together in the same sentence. And so I look as almost like an anthropologist of sorts and go, isn't that interesting? You know, and here we have it conflating with April 20th, you know, which all the cannabis companies, I wonder if they feel like their thunder is being stolen by Doge. And so, and for those who aren't aware, Doge is a cryptocurrency. I think most of you are aware of that. But what you might not be aware of is it was at 0.001 cents like maybe two or three months ago. You know, I had Doge at three cents and sold at eight and thought I was a genius. It's at 40 cents. And you could say, well, you know, and, and again, this is part of, and you could say, well, there's no fundamentals of Doge. But from a narrative perspective, in a sense, there are. It's that people love the image. I love the image. It's my favorite meme of all time, that dog. I almost ordered t-shirts like two months ago. I wish I had. I'd be wearing it right now. So my girlfriend and her son, her son, who's 12 years old, is excited about Doge. And he was excited, you know, six weeks ago. Too bad I never bought him Doge. I was going to buy him some Doge. What was I thinking? Darn. Maybe I'll buy him Doge anyway. And it's just going to be a little pricier for me this time around. So I'm just finding this all very interesting. I see this weird conflation of the news into one feed, and I'm exaggerating, you know, but I was just thinking to myself, you know, if LeBron James said something about Dogecoin, I think everybody would know about it now. See what I'm saying? Like, I, I think if you're in on Wall Street, you're going to hear about LeBron James saying something about Dogecoin. If you're in sports, if you're in, you know, IT, like, you know, if you're 
working at Amazon, somewhere like I feel like all these ideas are starting to get mixed together, a mingling of sorts, to use uh, alchemical word. There's a mingling of ideas here, and it's quite interesting. Now, just a final point. I was watching Daniela Camboni's show, uh, and she had Jim Rickards on, the renowned gold commentator, and he had a very interesting insight, which has sort of been something I've been saying for a couple of months in the crypto market, and, and let me get to it. So he was saying that Bitcoin was basically starting to undermine the concept of money. Bitcoin is starting to undermine the concept of money. Now, I have a slightly different perspective. What I've been telling people for the last two months is that crypto is making a mockery of money. And the reason I was saying that is because of, first of all, the ridiculous gains. And I've only taken part in some of these gains. Like I'm not here saying, oh, I've made a ton. But some people are making hand over fist. And I'm telling you, it is not uncommon for these some of these IDOs, initial DEX offerings, decentralized exchange offerings, for people to make 100x. Okay, so if you're lucky enough to put your get your $500 into that IDO, you're making $50,000 within three or four days of giving your money. And just a fine point on that, I have participated. This isn't just a story. Like two months ago, I got something that went up 20x. I, I was able to put in $1,000, walked away with $20,000 three days later. There's a vesting period. You have to sell over time, but it's held its price. And that vesting period is over. And I told, like, I told my girlfriend that day, I was like, I just made $20,000. I feel guilty. So the reason I say that is not to be like, yay for me. I'm just saying this is real. This is real. That's only happened to me once, by the way. You know, some of these people, they're making 100x, 50x. And what it does is like, here, like, I mean, this is more money than some people make in their entire lives. And I'm just saying in crypto, for things to go like 3x on an IDO is a disappointment. Think about that. So I don't want to go on too long here. We have a very exciting show. But all to say is this idea of money and the concept of money, as Jim Rickards was saying, is starting to be undermined. I agree with him. As I've been saying, when you see these 100x, 50x, and these kids making $50,000 in three days, it makes a mockery of money. I mean, what about all these people who are working at a job, you know, uh, and then they're like, okay, and then they spend two years. I felt guilty with, with my little wins, relatively speaking. And you saw it with the art as well with people and the $69 million sale for a digital art piece. I mean, if you look at art media for the last 10 years, what is their go-to thing? headline, it's, oh, this auction happened at Christie's and it's worth $100 million. And this is, oh, this went for $20 million, a new record. The crypto art market has made a mockery of the art market, in my opinion. It's turned everything upside down, I would argue. I'm sure there's a lot of people that would disagree with me. But just as, it's, as crypto has made a mockery of money, uh, this digital art thing, say the Beeple, made a mockery of the art market. Because now if that's your main line that the significance is, is based on how much money is spent, where does that leave your narrative? 
So I have gone on long here. We have a very exciting show. We have Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group, who is always brilliant. And what I loved about this conversation as we really get into the the gears, the meat and potatoes of how Jeffrey Christian thinks. I asked him about the super cycle as I had to, and he said it's a marketing term. And this really gets to the heart of how Jeffrey Christian thinks. He's like, there are a lot of macro and micro economic factors with each metal. The super cycle thing, it's like a, it's like a sales term. It's a simple, it's an oversimplification. And Jeffrey Christian likes to get into the details and into the details we go, it's largely macro. I ran out of time. I was, it's like a 40 minute interview. It's awesome. Um, but yeah, like we did get into some metals, the big ones that are making the headlines right now. We didn't get into everything. We didn't even talk about silver, but, but there is a lot to sink your teeth into in this interview. And it's more about how Jeffrey Christian looks at the commodities markets and how he's gauging our general situation right now. So lots to look forward to here and some pretty amazing news stories. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a story about a report that came out by Goldman Sachs where they are calling copper the new oil. And this is by Trish Saywell, Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief. And this comes on the heels of her story that she posted, more of a transcription of the speech by Robert Friedland uh, that he made at the CRU World Copper Conference. And that is super interesting. I'm going to read some of it, but it's, it's a little weird reading someone else's speech. So I recommend you just go and check that out, especially we know there are a lot of copper bulls that are following this copper market based on the tweets, based on the engagement of the tweets. You put in like a big copper headline, like Goldman Sachs calls copper the new oil, and wow, people respond to it, and we appreciate it. Uh, So let's take a look at that story. In a new report on copper, global investment bank Goldman Sachs says meeting the Paris climate goals and supporting the green transition away from fossil fuels and towards electrification, we'll see a surge in copper demand and forecasts a long-term supply gap of 8.2 million tons of the metal by 2030, the, quote, highest on record, twice the size of the gap that triggered the bull market in copper in the early 2000s, end quote. The authors, Nicholas Snowden, Daniel Sharp, and Jeffrey Curry, estimated that by 2030, copper demand from green electrification, quote, will grow nearly 600% to 5.4 million tons in our base case and 900% to 8.7 million tons in the case of hyper-adoption of green technologies. And they continued in the report that they estimate the green demand, and this is also a quote, we estimate that the green demand will grow at an average annual growth rate of 20% year-on-year in the 2020s. That's pretty big. That sounds like 20% compounded if it's 20% year-on-year for each following year, uh, generating just under 500,000 tons per year of growth in demand volumes. And this is another quote. Crucially, the copper market as it currently stands is not prepared for this demand environment. The market is already tight as pandemic stimulus, particularly in China, 
have supported a resurgence in demand set against stagnant supply conditions. Moreover, a decade of poor returns and ESG concerns have curtailed investment in future supply growth, bringing the market the closest it's ever been to peak supply, end quote. So stick around for the Jeffrey Christian interview, the Battle of the Jeffreys here, uh, because he also talks about copper, and he is not quite so... I want to call Goldman Sachs alarmist, but he's he's a little more sanguine on the copper market. Continuing on, the analysts argue that the mining industry, quote, remains wary of a pivot towards growth after the price collapse in the mid-2010s severely punished any front foot producers, end quote. And despite the fact that copper prices are up 80% over the last year, there have been no material greenfield project approvals and more consternation. Another quote, this long lead time for the majority of copper supply combined with the mining sector's resistance towards new capex leaves the copper market running out of runway to secure the necessary supply to meet demand in the second half of the decade. Given the size of deficits starting from the same point, approvals and investment in mine projects have to start now. And so they think a lot of this is going to come from EVs. Again, Jeffrey Christian is a bit of a skeptic on that. Copper demand for solar power, meanwhile is expected to rise 400,000 tons this year. So also solar power and copper demand for wind turbines is expected to triple to 1.3 million tons by 2030. And just a couple more quotes here. As we have long argued, moving the global economy toward net zero emissions remains a core driver of the structural bull market in commodities demand in which green metals, copper in particular, are critical. We estimate that by mid-decade, this growth in green demand alone will match and then quickly surpass the incremental demand China generated during the 2000s. Ripple effects into non-green channels mean the 2020s are expected to be the strongest phase of volume growth in global copper demand in history. I'm just going to repeat that. Ripple effects into non-green channels means the 2020s are expected to be the strongest phase of volume growth in global copper demand in history. All right. So this does dovetail off a recent global mining symposium feature that we had on this podcast where CHR Metals Hugh Roberts was saying basically the same thing, that the greening of the economy, the electrification of the economy could be expected to play the same role as China played in the 2000, I guess it was 2001 to 2010, 2011 bull market. So interesting when you get that uh, similar viewpoint. Don't worry, we have Jeffrey Christian to provide alternate views uh, later on in the program. Moving on, uh, lithium is also exciting people a lot. Macquarie joins peers on bullish lithium prices outlook. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi, mining.com. Lithium shares are on a roll after investment bank Macquarie joined peers in predicting a further increase in prices for the key battery metal driven by increasing demand from electric vehicles, which is expected to push the market into undersupply. Analysts at the bank are now forecasting prices to rise by between 30 and 100% for the next four years. Quote, our bullish EV demand outlook sees the lithium market move to deficit in 2022 with material shortages emerging from 2025. A lot is being bet on this electrical vehicle move that people are expecting. 
So, again, if Jeffrey Christian is right in his skepticism towards EVs, and we have an article from a couple of weeks ago where he goes into detail on that, it will be interesting. So we have Cameron Perks, a senior analyst at Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, who told Bloomberg, quote, if lithium and other high-cost inputs such as cobalt and nickel enter periods of sustained higher pricing, this would eventually take its toll on the ability of battery producers to keep lowering costs. And Orocabre, meanwhile, have been and Galaxy Resources have been upgraded by Macquarie. And you know, today's news was that, or yesterday's news was that Orocabre and Galaxy are merging. And maybe we'll get to that story next. Um, so they raised their ratings for Orocabre and Galaxy Resources. And further, Macquarie's bullish price outlook is based on the same data City used in mid-February when it upgraded its view of the battery metal sector and proclaimed that EVs were driving lithium price recovery. Quote, EV sales proved to be extremely resilient in 2020, growing by more than 35% year-on-year, while overall passenger vehicle sales fell by 20%. So, very interesting story, beautiful picture there of Bolivia's Salar Uyuni. Some of these lithium pictures are just stunning. So now let's take a look at this merger that everybody, which happened like two days later, yesterday, as far as I understand. Orocabre and Galaxy Resources, both lithium producers and processors mentioned in the previous article, they are to merge in $3 billion deal Lithium miners Galaxy Resources and Orocabre, and this is written by Cecilia Jamazmi, Mining.com, Lithium miners Galaxy Resources and Orocabre have agreed to a merger that would create a $3.1 billion company set to be the world's fifth largest producer of lithium chemicals, the refined form of the raw material used to make EV batteries. The business combination, the biggest mining sector deal of the year so far, will unlock significant synergies for the new company, the company said, quote, the logic of this merger is compelling, or Cabre's chairman, Robert Hubbard, said, who became deputy chairman of the new merged company, or Cabre produces lithium carbonate at its Olaroz operation in Argentina, while Galaxy has a mine in Australia and growth projects in Canada and South America. It's going to turn into a real global company. And we have Quote from Orocobre's current CEO and managing director, Martin Perez, the merger consolidates the combined group's position in Argentina and will give us significant operational, technical, and financial flexibility to deliver the full value of our combined portfolio. From Galaxy's perspective, and we have another quote from Galaxy CEO Simon Hay, from Galaxy's perspective, we were looking for a partner which had a deep in-country Argentinian experience and we've got that in Orocobre. So it sounds like a friendly merger here. And it is expected to be complete in August of this year. And the head office will be in Buenos Aires, Argentina, with the corporate headquarters on the Australian East Coast. I'm not sure what the difference between the head office and the corporate office is. It sounds like a very fun company if you're going to be flying between Buenos Aires and Australia. So moving 
on, Glencore shareholders are in revolt over the CEO pay. And this is the new CEO, Gary Nagel. And this is also by Cecilia Jamasmi, Mining.com. Proxy advisors Glass Lewis, one of Glencore's top shareholders, is pushing investors to vote against the company's plans to pay its new chief executive, Gary Nagel, up to $10.4 million. In a report for clients, Lewis said it was concerned that the remuneration package for Nagel was, quote, excessive for a newly appointed CEO with no previous experience of running a publicly listed company, end quote. And this is on the heels of Ivan Glassberg, its long-serving CEO who announced that he was stepping down in December to be replaced by Nagel, who was the head of its coal mining business. And Glass Lewis also said, quote, we consider a base salary of $1.8 million in conjunction with a short-term incentive opportunity of 250% of salary and an RSP opportunity of 225% of salary to be excessive, end quote. So Glencore shareholders, not too happy with that. I remember when that was happening at Barrick about five or six years ago. It was John Thornton. And he was, yeah, people weren't happy. The share price wasn't doing too well. And he was getting paid quite a lot of money. And finally, last story here. Anglo-American to run South American mines 100% on renewables. Also by Cecilia Jamasmi, mining.com. Anglo-American has signed a deal to run its Quilavico copper mine in Peru 100% on renewables, effectively allowing the miner to deliver on its promise of powering all of its Latin American operations by using green energy by 2022. The company vowed two years ago to meet power requirements of its copper operations in Chile with renewables by 2021. It also said it expected to have its iron ore and nickel operations in Brazil, as well as its copper mine in Peru, relying solely on green power by 2022. And we have a quote from Anik Michaud, Director of Corporate Relations and Sustainable Impact at Anglo-American, who said in a press release, quote, our sourcing of only renewable energy to power our operations across South America marks another step towards our 2030 GHG reduction target of 30%. The diversified miner has committed to becoming a carbon neutral firm by 2040, Earlier this month, it took a step further into exiting polluting commodities by announcing it would separate its South African coal assets into a new business this year. The move came amid mounting pressure from investors, regulators, and environmental organizations to make miners either sell coal assets or to limit their exposure to fossil fuel. Now, this can only bode well for uranium companies, I imagine. And we have a quote from Tom McCulley, CEO of Anglo-American in Peru. And he says, quote, copper has such an important role to play in enabling the global transition to a low carbon economy. So it is important for Anglo-Americans new world class copper mine in Peru, Quilavico, to lead the way by minimizing its own carbon and broader environmental footprint. End quote. So Anglo-American really making some strides to become 100% renewable and where it can't, it is spinning off in South African coal companies. Let's just spin those ones off because we're not going to be able to fix those ones. I am being facetious here. Okay, so those are your news stories. Now let's take a quick look at metal prices. And 
turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on April 20th, gold is trading at $1,774.51 per ounce. That is $47 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $25.94. That is a dollar higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,193.56 per ounce. That is $24 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,762.93. That is $59 higher than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.23 per pound. That is 15 cents higher than last week. Aluminum is up $0.03 at $1.05 per pound. Lead is also up at $0.92 per pound. That is $0.03 higher. Nickel is trading lower at $7.44 per pound. That is $0.10 lower than last week. Nickel is trading $0.09 higher at $12.82 per pound. Cobalt is a penny lower at $22.60 per pound. And zinc is trading $0.02 higher at $1.29 per pound. What do we see here? We see palladium uh, threatening record highs. We see the wind in basically everything sale. Gold is up. Silver is up. Nothing special, but platinum is up. Everything is up. I mean, copper is a bit of a standout at $4.23 per pound. Otherwise, though, everything is just smooth sailing with nickel as the outlier down 10 cents. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, a man who needs no introduction to this show, Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group, who has spent uh, his whole career really studying these markets. And it's the second time he's on the program. He looked great. I don't normally comment on people's appearance unless they look fantastic. And Jeffrey Christian... He's growing out his hair. He had this great suit on. The first thing I said to him is, Jeffrey, you look incredible. <laughs> there are words along those lines. And so, yeah, so uh, happy for him. He looked younger than I did. So anyways, I hope you enjoy the talk. It's a great discussion. I was really happy with it. And I will see you on the other side. Joining me on the program today, I'm very thrilled to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, who is managing partner at CPM Group. I had a great interview with Jeffrey about six months ago, and a ton of stuff has happened in the market, and I'm just delighted that he came back on the program. Jeffrey, welcome. Adrian, it's great to be here. I can't believe it was six months. <laughs> Maybe it's been four. Maybe it hasn't been six. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Yeah, good call. So... I, you know, I'm, however long it's been, it, it seems like a lot has happened since we've last talked. I mean, it seems like a lot of the concerns that people maybe had about inflation and all these sorts of things, or let's put it this way, a lot has happened in the commodities markets where prices have gone up uh, a fair amount. And feel free to disagree with me if I'm speaking too generally. Um, but it seems like things have gone up and that sort of the case for inflation seems to have been bolstered out. I mean, I don't even know if you connect commodity prices rising with inflation. Like, do you just want to start with that? Like, let's start basic. Do you, do you equate commodity price inflation with inflation in general? 
Yes, but with big provisos. I mean, commodity prices tend to be a lot more volatile than general producer prices. They're smaller. Yeah, just by definition, you know, the commodities markets are smaller than the broader economy. So they tend to be more volatile. And and there is a connection between rising commodity prices and general price inflation. And, you know, it, and it goes both ways. There's causation in both ways. Obviously, the cost of raw materials increases the cost of consumer products. So we've seen, you know, lumber prices are probably three or four times what they were a year or two ago. And the cost of housing has gone up commensurately. Similarly, as consumer prices rise, people will tend to move into commodities. You know, fabricators will build inventories in the expectation that the commodity prices are going to rise because of general price inflation, and investors will move in. And I think one of the things you've seen, and I think this is particularly true in copper, is that you've had a lot of investors coming in and buying metal, driving the prices up in the expectation that prices are going to rise. And it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but there's definitely an inflation component in there. And that's exactly where I wanted to go to on the next question, which is, what do you attribute these higher prices to? Now, it sounds like from what you just told me, you would attribute it to the anticipation of higher prices by traders. Uh, is, is that a fair characterization of what you just said? It's not so much traders as investors, but yes, you know, okay. the price, ex- the, the price expectations of invent of market participants, especially inventory holders or would-be inventory holders, their price expectations have an enormous weight on actual future price moves. So if you have, for example, in gold, where you have you know two billion ounces of gold held by investors and 1.1 billion ounces held by central banks, and if those people think the price is going to fall, they might sell. And that pushes the price down, fulfilling their prophecy. But if they think the price is going to rise, they don't sell. Maybe they even buy more, and that drives the price higher. And and so the price expectations of market participants is one of the biggest factors in future price determination. Yeah. Fascinating. So then following that, do you see... Uh, that investment demand as a, to use a topical word, as a transitory thing? Or like, how far can this be pushed? Oh, it's it's a long-term issue. And in fact, you know, in terms of long-term supply, demand, and price, uh, prices especially, it, it is one of the major determinants. So, you know, it, it, it it's not a transitory issue. Investment into commodities can be a transitory issue and, and investors tend to be very fickle. So, you know, it's the flavor of the month right now that there's not going to be enough copper uh, in the world to meet electric vehicle production requirements five or 10 years from now. Ergo, buy copper now. Yeah. And, and you know, chances are if you're an investor buying copper today, you'll be dead by 2030. <laughs> Just the longevity of human life versus uh, long-term expectations in, in electric vehicle demand. So um, <laughs> there, there, there are – it's a very important factor. And, in fact, in the precious metals, it's probably the most important factor, more so than actual fabrication demand. 
I'm going to stick on this very basic question that I'm asking you. So what do you attribute then the current, so big picture uh, price rises to? Is it, as you initially said, investment demand or are, are these people right? Like, is there more going on than that? Or is it simply a price expectation and there's nothing more that we can sort of say with any kind of certainty? Well, it depends on the individual commodity, you know, sure. um, and, and, and you could start with gold. You know, gold prices are high because investors are very much concerned about the state of the economy, uh, the state of global and national politics and financial market stability. Some of those things uh, are transitory and probably will fade. So we're not concerned about inflation. We think that inflation may pick mm. up a little bit in the second and third, fourth quarters of this year as a result of the economic recovery, as a result of the fact that you had constraints supply during the pandemic and lockdown, and as a result of all of the monetary and fiscal stimuli that we've seen around the world. But we think that inflation is going to be well-contained, well below 3%, uh, maybe 4% on a one-month spike. And that from a longer term perspective, inflation is not a problem. It hasn't been a problem really in the United States and in the U.S. economy since 1982, 1983. You know, now inflation expectations can push the price up, uh, mm -hmm. even if inflation doesn't follow. And we saw that in 1982, 1983, uh, where there was an enormous amount of uh, monetary largesse. Uh, you had had something like a 14% increase in M1 and a 38% increase in M3. And people looked at the leading indicator of inflation index and bought gold and took it from 270 to 500 dollars in six months by that time we were out of the recession and the treasury starts sopping up the excess liquidity by selling bonds to pay for reagan's deficits and the inflation never appeared inflation inflation in fact inflation ratcheted down and gold prices ratcheted down and oil prices ratcheted down all in the first quarter of, of 1983 so those inflation expectations can push prices up but we think that inflation itself, we're much more concerned about deflation than we are about inflation. And in central banks around the world and ma mainstream economists, they're not worried about inflation. They're worried about deflation. If you read their, their economic reports, they're worried about deflation. The Fed is saying, gee, we would like to see 2% inflation and we can't even get that. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of long-term inflation doesn't seem like a problematic issue to me. Now, going back to gold, there are other reasons why you might want to buy gold. You know, financial market stability, interest rates are extremely low, real interest rates are negative. In some countries, they're actually charging you to, to hold money. Uh, so there are financial market issues that would say to investors, hey, this is a good time to buy gold. The stock market is extremely high. If you look at it, that's where the inflation's been. You know, people say, well, how can you have all this monetary largesse without inflation? Well, there are a couple of reasons, but, you know, not to, to belabor the point. One of the things is that you have had inflation. All of that money's been going into the stock market and the bond market. That's why right. you have very high bond prices and very high stock prices. That causes those investors then to say, I think I should be hedging my stock exposure. I mean, you have a P.E. ratio in, in, in the New York Stock Exchange around 42 to, to 1 right now. You know, so like no one's buying a stock based on the corporation's prospects. This is all like a, a gamble. And you're all, you know, everybody in the stock market right now is saying, 
boy, I have been making out like a bandit at this roulette table. What are right. the odds that the next spin is, goes against me? You know, and so some of that money's moving into gold. It's yeah, like I, I think all of this is so topical. And so would you agree then, like, would you call that what people call asset price inflation versus like consumer or, you know, the basic yeah. price inflation? Is that what you would exactly. are basically yeah. saying? The money's going into banks and institutional investors and, and wealthy individuals. And, you know, if you if you think about it as a percentage of your thing, you give money or poorer people or middle class people get money. And a bigger portion of the increase in their income goes to things that consumers buy, food, housing, cars, vacations. If you give that money to very wealthy people, a very small portion of it goes into consumer products. Most of it goes into savings and investments. Uh, so the asset price inflation, if you want to be euphemistic, you know, goes into the stock market and the bond market. And that's what we've been seeing. Fascinating. Okay, so I got you there. Now, as far as positioning, say, your view versus, say, uh, the Jeffrey Curry, Goldman Sachs, super cycle view that is common, which kind of goes along with this copper uh, excitement. How do you sort of see the super cycle thesis? How do you position yourself there? When I wrote the book, Commodities Rising, which was named by the publisher, not by me. In 2005, I wrote a book called Commodities Not Rising. And I said the super cycle was a marketing hype. It's nothing more than a gimmick to market commodities to investors. I mean, the reason why commodity prices were rising from 2001 to 2011 was Economics 101. There is no super cycle. And, you know, the reason they fell from 2011 to 2018 was Economics 101. And now we're into what we think is going to be a second leg up, similar in size and duration to the 2001-2011 upward move. And it's based on basic economics. You know, this concept of when you start hearing people talk about commodity super cycle, I expect them to be dressed like P.T. Barnum. Yeah. Right, like you're trying to sell you something. No, but isn't this isn't this a, like I mean, if if I was to be devil's advocate on that, isn't this just semantics at the end of the day? Like uh, you call it uh, economics 101, someone else calls it a super cycle. Um, yes and no. I mean, and and it goes to something, and I don't want to criticize any one particular person, so I'll criticize everyone. Let's be critical of the financial markets. Financial markets like simplicity. You know, one of the nicest compliments I ever had was one of my clients introduced me and said, Jeffrey thinks that his job is to take simple questions and make them into complex ones. Uh, and, and, and there is an old saying that there's never been a issue that however complex an issue is, you can make it more complex. And, and I think the difference is that when you say it's economics 101, you're going to delve down into the macroeconomic factors behind it and the microeconomic factors that apply to each commodity. So we have a radically different view of gold than we do of copper, than we do of oil, than we do of soybeans, right? If you say commodity super cycle, what you're saying is don't bother me with the facts and details. I'm just going to, I'm just going to tell you throw money at commodities because it's, it's, it's glory days here. You know, I mean, it's just it speaks to oversimplification 
to use terms like a commodity supercycle. This is great. And okay, so let's transition then to the uh, individual commodities. And copper, as you say, is the flavor of the month. It's, uh, you know, I think Goldman Sachs just called it the new oil, which, mm-hmm. and maybe it is. Um, but uh, I'd be curious your perspective on how you see copper. I mean, like, I know you're skeptical about EVs, I, at least as far as I gather, uh, you know, um, from your writings and from the last time we talked. What's your view on copper then? Well, our view on copper is that, you know, the price right now is about $4.20 a pound, I think. And our view is that part of the price increase that has gotten us to where we are is really speculative investor demand based on this hype. You know, and there is some fundamental strength. Uh, you did see copper production decline last year because of the lockdowns and the interruption in, in production. But there is a lot of copper out there. There are people who don't seem to understand the relationship between prices, reserves, and resources. So they see very low resources. They see very few big copper production uh, properties coming into development and production. And they say, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, uh, a problem. And you can go back to when I, before I got involved in commodities in 19, the early 1970s, there was the Club of Rome and, and there were these futurists who didn't understand the difference be, between reserves and resources. They looked at copper reserves, oil reserves, gold and silver reserves, and they said, the world is going to run out of oil, copper, gold, and silver by 19, the early 1980s. Because if you look at the consumption rates that we have and you look at the um, reserves, we're going to run out. They didn't understand that as the supply demand gets tighter, the price rises. Right. So silver is a dollar twenty nine and then it goes to five dollars. And all of a sudden there are all these resources that are subeconomic at a dollar twenty nine that become economic to develop at five dollars. Yeah. In the same with copper. It's like, okay, copper is 40 cents a pound, but it goes to 80 cents a pound. And you have this tremendous boom in the 1970s of copper production. So there are people who look at perhaps inflated expectations for copper demand going out 10 years because of inflated expectations of electric vehicles and other things and the electrification. And again, it's like this oversimplification of the reality, you know, uh, and, and we can get into that in a second. And I will. Uh, but uh, they have this oversimplification of the demand curve over the next 10 years. And then they look at reserves and they look at the lack of large properties being developed. And they say, we're not going to have enough copper, not realizing that there are a lot of large properties that haven't been developed, that have been known for a decade or ten, two decades or four decades that at $4.20 makes sense to develop, right? On the demand side, just let me back up on that one thing. These wild expectations of copper use and electrification. But you start saying, okay, well, let's talk to the electricity transmission industry. How fast can you build a smart new grid? And they say, well, you know, this is our projection. These are our capacities to build it. And there are these expectations that are really high that don't take into account the fact that the using, the copper using industries can't grow that fast. They don't have the manufacturing capacity and the finance to grow as fast as some of these projections on the demand side. 
And by they, are, are you saying uh, investors, these people that can't read the difference between resources and reserves? Like, is that who you mean? Well, it's a, a whole it's a whole range of people. I mean, a lot of them are buy side investors. Uh, and, and you see this tremendous amount of cash that needs to be deployed. And so they're basically throwing money at industries. I mean, I get one of my brokers sends me every morning uh, two or three. Oh, here's a company, some of whom you've never heard of, and they're offering, uh, they're, they're issuing bonds. And do you want to subscribe? And the price is not given and the total amount is not given. And usually by 11 or 11.30 a.m., they're fully subscribed and the offer is closed. I mean, there's such a tremendous amount of money that institutional investors need to deploy. They're throwing it at everything, sort of like they did in the tech bubble. In you know, 2000. I, I see the same thing. And I know you're not a big crypto person, but I see these people do these IDOs, these, which mm -hmm. is like an ICO, like a initial offering. And there's like 100 people that want to get in for every one person that gets in. Right. Like it, it, and it's almost like the SPACs. We're mm -hmm. seeing a similar thing. It's right. Exactly the same thing. So. I mean, and I want to get to the other commodities, but I do want to back up for some is for a second. Is this just again symptomatic of too much money being out there? Like, I mean, you've been looking at markets studiously and carefully for decades. Uh, what do you attribute this to? It's too much money, but there's some other things too. I mean, we've had regulatory changes, which have actually, like in Europe, you have MIFID two, uh, and MIFID two sort of said, hey. You're not going to get free research from the buy, from the sell side anymore. You have to pay for the research. And the buy side, which is under a lot of cost pressures and performance pressures, sort of started saying, well, that research isn't all that good, so we're not going to buy it. And the analysts and, and portfolio managers within those institutions would say, well, we really need some independent research here, so let's buy some research. And senior management saying, well, we're under cost pressures. And quite frankly, that computer in the next room over is outperforming you. So maybe you need less research and maybe you need to think less about the individual things and just throw money at the market, right? Because that computer is a lot cheaper than you and it doesn't have all kinds of weird demands like, you know, my prima donna analysts have. So the buy side is saying, no, we're not going to spend money on research. And you've now had about three or four years where the buy side has wildly under-analyzed the markets that they're investing in. And because of the, the excess of money chasing these things and because the corporations are taking their, their cash and buying back their shares, the stock market has gone up and the models say, hey, this is okay that you don't know what you're buying because the price is rising anyway, you know. But like I said, you know, if you start saying, okay, the average PE on the ice is 42, you look at te Tesla and Tesla's PE ratio is now down to 1,700 years. <laughs> right. It used to be 2,700 years, you know. Right. And if you look at the earnings that they have reported, the majority of Tesla's earnings have been selling their clean credits to auto companies that don't have electric vehicles. They've made more money selling their credits for clean cars than they have made selling the cars. You know, so you've got a lot of things that are just flashing red and orange in this market. 
So what do you do with your money? Or I don't know if you talk about that on your in, in interviews, but where, what do you do? I mean, to me, that's like you say, it's flashing orange and red. And I think a lot of people see this. But what do you do? Do you buy gold? I mean, well, it's fine. Yeah, obviously, I like gold and silver. And, you know, we help investors buy gold and silver wisely. But it's funny because we have a lot of high net worth individuals and institutional investors who come to us and they say, we are way overexposed to cash because we're worried about the stock market, we're worried about the bond market. We're really not gotten into commodities. Uh, so we have an enormous portion of our portfolio or our wealth in cash. And we think that that's probably not wise. And our first comment is, no, it probably is wise. And, you know, personally, yeah, I have an enormous amount of my wealth in cash right now because That's, I look at the yeah. stock. I do have stocks and I do have bonds and I do have bank CDs and I do have uh, a range of commodities. But, you know, I look at the stock and bond markets. I say these things are very high risk. Yeah. And, and, and so our advice to a lot of clients is it's okay to be in cash because these are scary times. And if you're going to invest in stocks, you have to do the homework. You have to, like I said, you have to go back into the microeconomics. Is this company a good investment? Now, there are people who say, well, but Jeff, the stock market's been making money hand over fist. It's just been going up and up. Why spend all that time and intellectual effort looking at individual companies? Just buy an S&P future or option. And in fact, we have clients who do that and do that well, and we help them do that, you know, because, yeah, you know, this train is going down the tracks and, and the tracks go on for a long period of time. You might as well ride along. You have to be very cognizant that at some point this train's going to hit a brick wall. Right. I, I think it's almost like cash is the contrarian call right now. Everybody's just dying to get rid of their cash. And so in a sense, it's uh, it's uh, the diversified portfolio. You just got to stay diversified. And that means having some cash, right? Well, it's interesting because, you, you know, and what you say is true. And there you on a rhetorical level, you hear a lot of people bad mouthing cash. But if you looked at the actual statistics and I don't have them in front of me, but if you looked at the actual statistics, I would suggest that probably you have a higher portion of wealth in cash than you have had typically in the past. Now, finally, and then we'll get on to Palladium, which I want to get to, but wouldn't that bode well for all these assets, though? If you have tons of money on the sidelines, doesn't yeah. that mean, hey, there's this can go a lot further? Right? That's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, this party is yeah. going to go on for a while. And those yeah. people who say, well, you know, the Fed is out of bullets or the Fed doesn't uh, has is losing control or hyperinflation is coming or the Great Depression is coming, uh, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. This game can go on for a long period of time. And, you know, we're actually writing a report for one of our clients right now called, and the working title is, Gold is a Good Investment Despite What the Gold Bulls Say. You know? <laughs> Did you come up with that title? Yes. <laughs> uh, if you, I mean, you know, we don't name names. So here's a guy who wrote a book in, 19, in the 1970s saying, get ready for the next Great Depression. And you look at an interview with this guy 50 years later, and he's saying, get ready for the next Great Depression. You know, there are other people who haven't been in business as long. They've been in business since the 90s or the early 90s or the late 90s. And they've been saying, oh, yeah, you know, the Fed is losing control. They just don't. They don't have the macro or microeconomic basis to support those arguments. And 
they've been wrong for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. You know, at what point do you say, you know, dear sir, I can't afford to listen to your investment advice anymore? You know, there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, gold bugs who have been, you know, or people who follow gold that listen to our podcast and that follow mine. And I think a lot of people have come to that conclusion that, you know, in 2011, 2012, 2013, they're being told the world's going to end and the stock market just keeps going up. Mm -hmm. uh, so to your point, at what point do you stop listing? Um, and quickly on bonds. So are were you worried about this move in the bond market that uh, cable news was freaking out over? <laughs> well, I was surprised at how fast the, the bond price moved up. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not surprised that it's given up, you know, what, about 30% of its increase. Uh, but I do think that it is indicative of the state of the world that we're in. But, you know, it, and it's very also telling because, you know, there are two bond markets. Uh, yeah, for From an investor's perspective, there are two bond markets. And one of the things that you saw was there are people who invest using valuation models based off of U.S. Treasuries. And as the Treasuries rose, they were selling gold, they were selling stocks, they were selling everything because as the interest rate rose, that meant that the under the prices of these competing assets had to be lower to compete with the treasuries, you know. And and that's a very short term type of thing. Then you had all these longer term investors saying, "Wait a second, yeah, the interest rates are rising, but they're going from one to one point seven. They're still at low, incredibly low levels, you know. And you still have negative real interest rates, which is what really matters, you know. <laughs> you know, if you're um, so." I don't see what all the hoopla is because I'm a long-term investor and as a long-term investor, 1.7% and a negative 1% real interest rates doesn't cause me to say I don't need gold anymore. You know? Yeah. And, and to your point, like I, I felt the same way actually, because pre-pandemic, it was still higher than it is now. Exactly. So it's sort of like, what's the big, you know, what are we, it means we're reopening, you know, I, you know, like, let's not time, let's not pull the fire alarm. Okay. So quickly, um, just on palladium, it looks like it's hitting an all, it's going to break an all time high. What, what are your thoughts? Again? Uh, well, it's, it's a combination of things. First off, you had some supply problems, both in Russia and in South Africa. The South African ones seem to be behind us, but the Russian ones are just emerging. And we're not clear because it's Norilsk and it's Russia. We're not clear how serious those supply disruptions are. So you have some fabricators and inter market intermediaries who have been scrounging for inventory until they have a better idea of supply. Second thing is, again, and you know, you have to understand percentages. Yeah. We're coming out of a very bad 2020 in terms of the auto industry and to some extent electronics, although electronics did pretty well because people were buying a bunch of home electronics to set themselves up to work from home. But with the auto sector, which is the major palladium market, uh, you had a devastatingly bad 2020. And now you're seeing a sharp increase in auto production and sales partly because you're coming out of that trough, but also because like in the United States and Europe and Canada, people are moving to the suburbs. So they need a car or they need two cars, you know, uh, and, and so you are seeing fabrication demand rising. You're seeing inventory building by fabricators and, and the processors in, in, in the, the supply chain. And then you have investors moving in. And, the, you know, the big problem is, you know, how much of this is investor demand that can turn around at a dime? 
and how much of this is real demand. And we're not quite sure what the mix is, uh, but you know, clearly record prices are being assisted by a large amount of investor funds moving into palladium. Uh, so, you know, the price keeps rising. It keeps moving to record levels. Ten years ago, we said, hey, we probably said, hey, you know, this doesn't have much further to go. But after 10 years of steady increases and in ever uh, higher record prices, we're disinclined to say that because the future price of palladium is heavily dependent on the future price expectations of those inventory holders. If they continue to buy because they think the price is going to continue to rise, the price will rise. But if they say, wait a second, this just looks overextended, or if there's some news about the shift away from palladium to platinum and catalysts, or a shift away from petroleum burning uh, vehicles to electric vehicles, if there's some shift in the palladium market, those guys could decide to dump, and they have millions of ounces of palladium. And the palladium market is one of those places that it's easy to buy, but it's difficult to sell. You know, mm. especially if you're an investor. If you're an investor mm. and you call up somebody and you say, I want to buy palladium, they'll sell it to you. If you call up and they say, if you're an investor and you call up and they say, wait a second, I sold that guy palladium and the price is $100 lower. I know why he's calling and I don't want to answer that phone. <laughs> or if I do, I'm going to give you a wide spread. And you can see, you know, spreads, bid-ask spreads of hundreds of dollars in palladium if really? those investors start to sell off. So it's not a super liquid market? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's not a super liquid market at all. Okay, very interesting. Uh, finally, are, are there any other commodities? I mean, I only touched on a couple here, but is there anything else that we should that's turning your head uh, that we should be uh, cognizant of? I mean, cobalt's gone up it's almost doubled in the last couple of months few months so uh, you're not you're a bit of an ev car skeptic as far as i understand um yeah any, anything else that sort of we should be thinking about well we're looking at cobalt i mean it's come up sharply but it, it had gotten really hammered down by people saying wait a second they're not going to use 30 percent cobalt sulfate it's 20 percent wait no it's 10 percent cobalt sulfate you know, so I think that the cobalt price got hammered down. It's coming back up because any transition to a lower cobalt content in electric vehicle batteries is going to be several years going forward. And, you know, from the perspective of several years going forward, we're watching, spending a lot of time looking at the technologies of batteries because there's some very interesting experimental discoveries that could radically alter the demand for nickel, manganese, and cobalt in batteries, as well as lithium and graphite. So, you know, that is a very treacherous waters to swim in. I obviously, I like, I'm interested in gold and silver because they're safe havens and they're portfolio diversifiers. Uh, platinum, I'm more interested in than palladium, simply because you are seeing a shift away from palladium intense catalysts to platinum intense catalysts. It's not that you're going to stop using palladium, but you're going to use more platinum at the expense of palladium. So I think that platinum, which has been hammered down for the last five years, has started to move upward and probably will continue to rise over the next several years. So I like platinum. We're actually paying attention to oil right now. Uh, mm. You know, at, at $40 a barrel, $45 a barrel, oil was constrained at $60, $62 a barrel. Uh, there's a lot of capacity that can come back on stream profitably. 
So we're watching that one. Um, and, and you and, mean you're watching it to potentially go lower? No, we're looking to see what's going to happen in terms of the price. My own view okay. is that, you know, the market clearing price of oil is probably 55 to $75, which is a wide range. But, you know, below $55, you start really getting constrained supply and some of the constraints and demand go away. And over $75, you start seeing more uh, substitution away from it and a lower uh, uh, demand growth rate. So, uh, you know, we're watching oil a little bit. Uh, that's probably pretty much what we're focusing on right now. Okay. And nickel, any thoughts or is it just another industrial commodity? No big deal. I'll be honest with you. I haven't looked at nickel. You know, we are looking at it because of the nickel sulfate issue with electric vehicle batteries, but that's a high purity nickel. And right now it represents a relatively small portion of the nickel market. You know, five years, 10 years from now, it may be much more important. In terms of nickel today in the broader nickel market, uh, it, it's really a steel uh, issue right now. And that has to do with the economic recovery. It has to do with Chinese-Australian relate, political relations and a variety of other issues. And tell me about China. I mean, there's rumors of stockpiling in China. Um, you know, what's the deal with to ask a very big picture question and take it wherever you want to take it. What's the deal with uh, commodities in China? Do you have any insights for us on that? Well, the thing about China is it's a very large and complex managed economy. It's not a communist centrally planned economy anymore, but it's not a capitalist economy. It's a managed economy. Uh, I tell the joke about, you know, in the early 1990s after the Soviet Union collapsed and Eastern Europe uh, threw off communism. We went from calling them centrally planned economy net exports to uh, transitional economy net exports. And the Eastern Europeans and the Russians were very happy to see that we thought they were in transition to something ostensibly better. Uh, and the Chinese said, what are we transitioning to, Jeff? We're still centrally planned. But that was 1992. Now you've got a managed economy and it's a uh, interesting situation because you are seeing pockets of stockpiling. And I think that there are a combination of factors. One is let's support certain industries that we think are critical and will be critical. And we have to make sure that they survive the current situation, which may not be all that profitable for them, so that they're here in their future when we do need it. There's also an issue, I think, that they're looking at certain metals and chemicals and other things and saying it's okay for us to have a national stockpile of these things because we are going to need more at some point in the future. And the political environment is becoming much more globally, internationally, is becoming much more hostile for China. It's not just the United States that's doing the saber rattling, Australia and Europe and, and even Russia behind the scenes are showing a lot more static in their relationships. So the Chinese are saying, you know, we need to protect ourselves and make sure that we can get the products that we need in an increasingly globalized market. Uh, so maybe we export less and we stockpile more. In a sense, like get it while you can in case this yeah. gets worse. Uh, exactly. Right. And it, it did seem like they did a lot to alienate a lot of people, a lot of countries in the last <laughs> year. Right. <laughs> 
Um, good. Okay. Well, thank you, Jeffrey Christian. Thank you for making the time. Jeffrey Christian, CPM Group Managing Partner. It's always a pleasure to get your insights. Uh, there's nothing like talking to a real expert on this stuff. Thanks for joining the program. You're welcome. And I looked at the date. It was October 27th, 2020. It had been six months. Well, five months and three weeks, but I'll call that six months. So anyways, uh, thank you once again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a pleasure. Thank you to Jeffrey Christian once again. And lots of exciting stuff coming up in the weeks ahead. And we have a global mining symposium coming up. Check out events.northernminer.com. Until next week, take care. This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF.